0: Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. I'm looking for support in 2018 to keep the show going and have started a GoFundMe. If the show has been of any help to you on your writing journey, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating so that I can continue airing. Visit GoFundMe.com and search for Writer Writer Pants on Fire to contribute. Today's guest is Jenny Martin, author of the sci-fi YA novels, Tracked and Marked. Jenny joined me today to talk about the importance of critique partners, how to find them, how to treat them, and how to keep them. Emmy believes in heart-stopping kisses, just not the kind that land your date in the hospital. Paul had one job. Watch Emmy. Should have been easy, but then she kissed that boy. Kiss Me, Kill You by Larissa C. Hardesty is packed with intrigue, sizzling romance, and killer suspense. We actually met online way back. Pre-pub, definitely, but even before I knew how to write a query letter. We met on a website called AQC, yep. Agent Query Connect, and served as critique partners for one another. I think it's an interesting lesson that neither of the manuscripts that we swapped with one another ever made it to publication. But it's still a good learning experience. With that in mind, what do you look for in a critique partner and how important do you think critique partners are in the journey from aspiring author to published?
1: They're very important. I remember those times on Agent Query and I had just jumped into the pool and was writing seriously for the first time. And I look back and, you know, I thought I knew so much and I knew so little. You still learn. I think we became critique partners because you kind of learn what you're looking for and who's well-suited to share work with. I belong to a workshop in Dallas that meets once a week. I don't always go once a week, but it's read and critique and you're six readers in a room and you read your work week after week to familiar readers and you listen and take in all the feedback. And then I have one critique partner currently, Melissa Linhart. She writes historical feminist Westerns and other cool stuff. She is perfect because she gently challenges me. She gets what I'm trying to do and we're on the same wavelength like some of the same things and so she gives me that great good-hearted creative push and I try to do the same for her and I think that's important to have a crit partner that gets it other than that though mm-hmm. I don't have a ton of other crit partners because I'm usually not ready mm-hmm. to share my work until it gets close to agent submission
0: I'm similar in that I was very picky especially going out when you're very wet behind the ears and you don't know what to expect or look for in a critique partner, you're essentially finding someone that is a complete stranger that you meet online that you email your book to, and you're trusting them not only with it, but also to not break your heart. And so there's just, there's so many elements of trust involved there. A lot of people worry about having their work stolen. I don't know that there's a huge risk there because you'll find that writers genuinely are only passionate about their own stories. <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're not right. looking yeah. for someone else's to swipe. And, but I understand the concern. Yeah. And concept and ideas
1: are a dime or a dozen, and it's all in the execution. I mean, even if that's right, someone did steal your idea, they're not going to write it in the badass particular way that you would. They'll write it
0: in their own way. So anyway, that's just something I hear a lot of aspiring writers or newbie writers talking about it is that they're really worried about protecting their work and yeah. i think much like children if you're really really worried about protecting them they're never going to get out there and actually grow you mentioned that people are usually excited
1: about their own work i do think that's a key to finding a great critique partner is if there's someone you read their stuff and you love it and you respect and you feel that they have the chops that's a good critique partner for you you can help each other. You're going to appreciate each other's work and you're going to know what points to challenge it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And people ask me how to find critique partners. I do suggest trying to find someone uh, local. If you can, like Mm -hmm. you're saying, you have Mm -hmm. a read and critique group. I often tell especially teen writers, young writers, that they can try their local library. A lot of the times, if you live, especially in more of an urban area or suburban, there will often be like a teen writing group. So always check with your local librarians and see if they have some program that already exists. But if you're also not someone that wants to go out and get face-to-face and get that feedback in real time, I totally understand that. I found all my critique partners online, most of them through Agent Query Connect, which is Mm -hmm. agentqueryconnect.com. And the way that I operated was just to get to know people, the way you can genuinely get to know people through a message board and a forum. You watch how they interact with other people and you can get a sense of their own writing style just through their posts and their personality. And once you see someone that you think, yeah, I like this person. Like I like how they treat other people and I like, whether they're formal or informal, like whatever way and, you know, reach out and be like, Hey, but yeah. the important thing is you have to be aware that it's a give and take. Like you read for them and they read for you. Yes, absolutely. And that's the
1: way you find them in person critique group. You notice who is always right on, always gives great feedback and does it in a great way. And it's the same online in those message boards. So you think, yes, I get this person. Maybe they will get me. Let us try.
0: Exactly. Exactly. I know from my critique partners that I have used over the years have two or three that I use consistently. They're invaluable and they know me now. Like we are careful with each other at first. When I was first working with people I didn't know that are strangers, I make sure to make positive comments when there's something that's really working or they have a great moment or a scene that's really vivid. I'm like, yeah, this was great. Obviously I'm pointing out where there are things that need work as well. Now with my Mm -hmm. critique partners that I have, that we trust each other, we've been working together for years now, I don't bother with the compliments because compliments don't help you grow. Mm -hmm. And they don't bother with them with me either. If I make them laugh, they'll let me know. And I do the same. If there is a really stellar line, I'll be like, man, that was awesome. But most of the time, once you're in a comfortable place with your critique partners, it is mostly critique. I think it depends on the point in the process too.
1: I know with Melissa's work, sometimes in her earlier drafts, I will highlight the things that I love because I want her to know this is the heart and soul. This is what you want to flesh out more because it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And this other stuff, mm-hmm. you know, you can do whatever with it. But this is where is that? I don't pull any punches, but then I do love to point out something lovely and wonderful. I always look at it this way. I, I'm not going to get it exactly right. Real game and quote. It goes something like. When someone tells you there's something wrong with your work, 99.9% of the time they're right. When someone Mm -hmm. tells you exactly how to fix it, 99.9% of the time they're wrong. So sometimes you may disagree with the, the critique. They're speaking truth about that something's not clicking, they're confused, or something's not doing what it's supposed to do. And then it's up to you to listen. I have to figure out a way to fix it.
0: Because you, as the author, are the person most in touch with the core message and the soul of the book. Mm -hmm. Having someone else tell you how to fix it is probably, like you said, 99.9% of the time, inaccurate. But I always make suggestions, and then they can roll with that. R.C. Lewis is a critique partner of mine. She always calls it option Q. She says there's a group of us we work with, and someone gives her a suggestion x and suggestion y and that helps her come up with option q and
1: i think that all goes back to when you find someone who you're on that same wavelength they can do that because their mind go may go down a rabbit trail that gels with just the kind of thing you're trying to pull off so i think if you've got a really great critique partner boy you can just bounce those ideas and talk ways to fix your plot, and it's a
0: great place to be Up next, writing for the sake of writing, instead of for the sake of being published. Dominique is a high school junior from a rough neighborhood in Trenton, New Jersey, where she and her mom are barely getting by. Ben is a musical prodigy from New York City, a violinist at a top conservatory with obsessive talent and a brilliant future. Their worlds collide in Someday, Somewhere a new YA novel by Lindsay Champion for fans of Jennifer Niven and Nicola Yoon. Pick up the love story that Entertainment Weekly calls a miraculous debut, and School Library Journal Raves is masterfully crafted in stores and online now. Like me, you have been in the game for a while. Tell us a little bit about your journey from wanting to be published to actually getting there oh, how many hours
1: do you have? It's funny, the the beginning of the story is one I've told many times when people ask, you know, how did you become published? But the cool thing for me is I'm finally at this place now that the end point of the story is a good place. When I was a kid, of course, I wanted to write even into high school. The voices of reason, quote unquote, you know, told me that wasn't a real job and I shouldn't do it. And so I, I didn't. And I went into education. But when I finally became a librarian 20 years later, it was 2008. I was done with my master's. I had just churned out paper after paper after paper. I'd been writing for everyone else but me. I just felt this urge inside just bursting out that I wanted to write for me. Mm-hmm. And I got an idea in my brain and I just wrote a novel and then kept going and kept going and kept going. I got an agent, I think in 2010. Didn't get very far, didn't go on submission. She ended up leaving the business. And I got my second agent, Sarah Crow, Mm -hmm. and she took my book out. It didn't sell. Took it on another round, didn't sell. I wrote another book, didn't sell, didn't sell. And then at this low point, I wrote track. And I think that track was sort of like an angry yell at the universe. And I wrote it, but it was truthful and more speaking from what was inside of me and that was the one that ended up selling but then even then you know you climb the mountain and you just find out at the top there's more mountains the book was sold in 2012 and it got bumped like three or four times didn't come out till 2015 wow there were all kinds of things and there were actually a couple of years where I was really crushed the realities of publishing had kind of ground me down, I became the worst version of myself. Mm. You know, I became bitter and upset and I got caught up in focusing on publishing Mm. and that, instead of focusing on creating and writing, it affected my work. That voice inside of me that wrote started to get quiet Mm. because I was so focused on publishing and you can't do that. The actual publishing is not the heart and soul of your work. Right. The social media book promoting isn't awards list, all those things. The heart of it is the actual work. Writing is what gives me joy and what makes me feel strong and just gives my life meaning. I read Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. Yes. And I read, I am so into Ray Bradbury now. Sam Weller, he's a professor and a writer. Mm-hmm. And he was, Ray Bradbury's official biographer, and he has thousands of hours of interviews with him. And he always shares his talks, and you can read his books about Ray Bradbury. And Ray Bradbury saved my writing life. I read about his work and his process, and I realized that he was all about creating art all the time, sucking in good art, just breathing it in all around you, living in the moment, doing that, and that fuels the fire of writing. And if you focus on that, that's when you'll be happy. He says, stuff your eyes with wonder. Live as if you drop dead in 10 seconds. See the world. It's more fantastic than any dream made or paid for in factories. Mm. You must stay drunk on writing so reality cannot destroy you. That's awesome. Once I realized that, that you need to read and consume great things, I was really renewed. And the bitterness is gone. All those worries are gone and I'm full of inspiration and ready to write again. That's a long rambly way of saying you can't focus on the business of it. You got to focus on the work. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's the truth. I absolutely agree with you. Completely agree with that. While at the same time being aware of the business side, I think that writing with the focus on the creativity is the way to get writing done. I believe it's the only way to get writing done. Actually, yes, especially with yes. joy, with joy in mind, mm-hmm. it is the only way to get writing done. If you want to make a living, you have to think about the business right. side. Yeah. So there's a caveat, and oh, well, you have to think about it. Yeah, but there that. Yeah, but it's a distinction, and I, I realize that that's where yeah. you're coming from. Is that in order to actually find joy in your art? you can't think about the business side. And I agree with that a hundred percent. When you're done creating the art, you have to think about the business side. (laughs) You've got to notice
1: and handle the business side. You got to take care of your business and you can't ignore it, but you have to realize that some things are completely out of the realm of your control, right? That you have to keep writing and positioning yourself in the best way that you can and keep creating. You just can't get hung up on one particular failure, And I think that's true of so many professions. Yeah. That you've got to be in the game and be good at it, but you can't let it knock you down where you don't get back up.
0: That's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. And I've been talking about with my guests quite a bit as well, because I believe that as a beginning writer and as a writer further down the path, you have to both absolutely believe in yourself and your story and the fact that you are capable of creating it and delivering it and that it is worthwhile in order to make it Mm -hmm. in the first place you have to or else you won't do it because it's not worth it it's not worth the pain. but then once it's there once it exists you have to acknowledge that it is flawed so that it can improve right balancing between absolute confidence and pure abject humility it's just it's a it's a tightrope i think you must walk that tightrope i always think of it as
1: you are constantly reaching for words just out of your reach i agree if you have so much self-confidence in yourself and you think your work is so excellent and so great it's probably awful i think it's called the dunning kruger effect it is people who are really excellent have the self-awareness to know there's so much more to learn yeah And people who are not quite as talented are not wise enough to know that they don't know everything.
0: And I'm also going to write some things that I know aren't going to sell. But if I want to write that story, I need to write that story just because that story is in me and it deserves to exist.
1: It's such a balance because if you totally ignore that voice that really wants
0: to come out, it'll start being quiet and it won't be there when you need it to get the work done. That's right you mentioned big magic. I listened to that when I was coming home from a photographer's convention, Mm -hmm. actually, that I was Mm -hmm. asked to speak at. And someone said, you have to read this. So I listened to it and she was talking about the gift of inspiration and how that is given to us. And how (laughs) Elizabeth Gilbert believes that it truly is like an entity in some ways that settles upon you and gives you A story. A story is a physical being that comes to you and chooses you. And if you don't write it, it, it'll go to somebody else. I would say that's the one part of the book
1: that was tougher for me Mm -hmm. because I'm not one that thinks you're gifted with inspiration normally. Mm -hmm. I think that it's within you. Mm -hmm. All that stuff is inside of you, all the memories in your life, and everything you've seen, and all your experiences that's all in your subconscious. It's just, you've got to coax it out Mm -hmm. and not all of it'll be great. You've got to artfully get that out. Another Ray Bradbury quote. He says, we're cups constantly and quietly being filled. The trick is knowing how to tip ourselves over and let the beautiful stuff out. Mm -hmm. So I feel like if you wait to just be inspired in that perfect moment, I'm not sure it will come often enough. No,
0: I absolutely You know, I think you gotta. I I don't wait for inspiration to begin my work. Yeah. Because otherwise you'd never start. Sit down
1: and just start writing and just start mining that your subconscious and start going for it. And I feel that's how you know that you're a real writer. Mm -hmm. Writers write. Mm -hmm. There's a
0: lot of people talk about writing. Growing up, people would ask me, What are you gonna do when you grow up? I'm gonna be a writer. Like, no hesitation. This is what I do, right? but i never mm-hmm. actually written anything. <laughs> like I was just like, yeah, I'm a writer, but I never wrote. Like I would write occasionally, but I never finished anything. I never finished a novel until I was 22. I said to myself one day, like, I think I was a freshman or a sophomore in college. And I had read a book that I didn't think was very good. And I was like, I can write better than that. And then the devil on my shoulder was like, yeah, then do it, please. do it. And the truth is that, honestly, that first novel that I executed was definitely not better than the book that I read that I disparaged. <laughs> like, there's no doubt. I was terrible. But it was Mine time. Either. You know, it was time. I was like, okay, if you're a writer, then you're know, shut up and write. You have mm-hmm. to. There has to be that point. But I also like to tell, especially aspiring writers, you know, I'll have 11-year-olds who be like, yeah, I just can't finish anything. I'm like, dude, it's okay. Like, you got time. Don't feel like you have to be published yeah. for any age. You
1: mentioned how sometimes writers are worried about they can't finish anything. I think sometimes that's because you're not ready for a certain project. Mm -hmm. I know for the last few years, I've been working on this epic, epic idea that I've just been thinking about so much. And every time I try to start it, I can't quite get the right angle on it. It's like a cup without a handle. Mm. But every once in a while, I'll have a big mental breakthrough where I'll be like, oh, that's what that is. And it comes in dribs and drabs. And I know I need to be working on another project that I can knock out that I'm ready for. And that one can be on the back burner Mm -hmm. and it can kind of come out when it's ready. So I'm continually writing, but I know some projects are a little bit more of a labor of love and I don't quite have the chops for yet. And I just keep writing and working until I do.
0: I absolutely agree with you. That very first draft that I banged out after saying I'm a better writer than this person and I wasn't <laughs> was the female of the species and it sucked oh wow oh it sucked like it was really bad <laughs> oh man well your end product did not well thank you that's but magnificent that, thank you but that, end that product story. is has zero percent <laughs> of that first draft So I think you're right. You have to develop as a writer before you can tackle certain projects. That's the first novel I ever wrote. It's the fifth one that got published. And that's because I needed 15 years to become a better writer in order to execute that book. And I bet you
1: over the years, you had breakthroughs or insights or things about that book over time that you were finally ready for that story to come
0: out. I kept working on it. I would revise it, but I wasn't Mm -hmm. brave enough Mm -hmm. to junk it and go to a file, new document. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I just kept working with the old. Mm-hmm. And it really was trash. Tinkering. yeah. I was tinkering and I needed to be mm-hmm. blowing up what I had and starting from scratch.
1: Tough and painful, but wow, the result. I've been working this one big epic project that I talk about. I wrote 50,000 words of it and had to throw them all out. And I mean, there are traces of the heart and soul. Sometimes that stuff is exploratory. I swear I have to write the wrong way a scene three different times before I know the right mm-hmm. way. That is so amazing. I love the story about female of the species. Yep, yep,
0: that's true. Probably
1: never let anyone
0: see that manuscript. No, it's embarrassing.
1: Wow. <laughs> like, I mean, so
0: many of the things. My first like, even who too. I am as a person is vastly different. Not good writing, but also just not a good worldview in some ways either. I really
1: connected with you when you mentioned about how you were tinkering, because that was one of my biggest roadblocks. In the beginning as a writer, I could accept feedback, but I just wanted to hold on to every little phrase and salvage as many words as I could. I hadn't learned that you, sometimes you have to let go. It's just preliminary. It's just exploratory. You need to start back. It was your blog where I blogged about Having my biggest breakthrough where I learned not to tinker, where I learned to really actually revise. Mm -hmm. It was only until I learned that, that I could even be published.
0: It takes a lot of courage to actually revise, to get rid of stuff. And people call it killing your darlings. And that's true. Like in some ways it's emotional Mm -hmm. because you're attached to lines that just aren't working. Like, they work for you, but no one else. Mm-hmm. But there's also just, you know, I, this is work. This is work that I did. It's like building the first story of a house and then burning it down and starting again. Mm-hmm. That's hard. Lastly, cover trends in YA and where to find Jenny online. So your first series begins with Tract, which is something like NASCAR in space with Intrigue, followed by <laughs> I love pitching it like that. That's how I pitch yes. it in my library. Both of those books feature a female protagonist, but they're highly marketable towards male readers, which is borne out through the covers, which are very gender neutral. So, was this a conscious decision you made while writing, or is that just your style? I think it was just my style.
1: Of course, there's a lot of feminism in it. Mm -hmm. And as a kid, I loved, loved, loved Star Wars and I loved adventurous stories and rogues. I always felt like I never could see myself in the role of those protagonists like I wanted to be Han Solo. Mm -hmm. I didn't see enough of that. So I think writing Fee's story, this spitfire, this rogue, this person who makes mistakes and is kind of careless and headstrong. I think that's where that came from. And so I don't know that I thought consciously about it appealing to men and women. Mm -hmm. It just kind of ended up that way. And you mentioned the covers. Now, I will say that Penguin I uh, let me have a little bit of input and I had a Pinterest board and it was, you know, images from Tron and <laughs> racing sure. logos and stuff. And it's almost like they threw those things in a blender, came up with those. Yeah. And I did tell them, I don't want a girl in the dress on the cover. Quite. I love girl in a dress books they're wonderful but I said
0: this is not yeah we we came out right um, there when girl in a big floaty poofy dress was the thing there was big face it was big faces for a long time and then it was girl in big dress that was a thing that was a real tough time (laughs) and I remember when they asked me for not a drop to drink they were like what do you want on the cover and I'm like not a girl in a dress Yeah, and
1: it's not a slam against those things no, at all. They're beautiful. It's it just, just don't. It doesn't fit the up. aesthetic of the book. Covers are so tricky. If you can find someone who really gets it right, what a gift! Yeah,
0: I've been very lucky. My so cover great. designer is yeah. very good at what she does. Mm-hmm. I actually really like your covers. I think mm-hmm. they're great. I think they're very um, symbolic and iconic. Oh they yeah, do a wonderful job of conveying content and marketability to the audience. Yeah, I think they're great. It is interesting, though, talking about... I'd forgotten, because I'm not in the library anymore, so I'd actually forgotten about the girl in a dress period. If a book hits, Mm -hmm. like it hits really big, then everybody plays off whatever it was they think might have been working with that book. So I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe Lauren Oliver's books really hit off the big face covers. I think that's where... Mm -hmm. That started and then suddenly everybody had a big face. It was just a close-up of a beautiful girl all the time. And before that, there was Twilight. So we had a solid three years of black covers. And then there was a pink cover stage. And then big face. And then girl in a dress. I don't know. Where are we at
1: now? What's the big, what's the trend now? One of the covers that I love and one of my all-time favorite books is Dumplin' by Julie Murphy. Love that woman. Love her work. And that is a really amazing cover. And one reason I like it is it looks like the kind of cover treatment that maybe a literary author would get. I think sometimes women are just marketed and packaged and their covers are done in a certain way that they wouldn't be if author was male. And so we want to get to that place where thing goes. For anybody's work, you know, as long as it fits the aesthetic of the group. Great.
0: There was a very interesting mm-hmm. Twitter thread I was just digging through last night yeah. about ageism, especially in YA. And I don't know if you saw it or not, but it was really interesting because they were talking about people who want to write YA having some trepidation and anxiety about not being published before they were 30 and really believing. That If you couldn't break into YA when you yourself were still quite young, that you weren't going to make it, which is, first of all, it's untrue, but there is a tendency to really market the young and attractive writers. Someone had tweeted, and I don't know if this is true, but someone had tweeted that older authors sometimes do not have an author photo Mm -hmm. because they're old. Whatever old might mean. And I thought that was really interesting. I definitely see it. I mean, it's out there. There's no doubt about that. And I think that publishing needs to ask that question. It's like, well, what are we telling teenagers then? Successful means pretty. Successful means young. Successful right. is youth and vitality. I just turned 39 and mm-hmm. my books find an audience. Hey, 43, lifetime in education, working
1: with teens and kids all the time. Love it. Wouldn't have it any other way. And I agree. And it's, there's something almost insidious about it. This idea that, well, let's position this guy because he's young and cute, and he'll be great in conferences, and he'll look good on Buzzfeed and whatever. You can get kind of consumed by that. If I get to thinking about that too much, it's not good. Mm-hmm. But yeah. The antidote to that is, I think, amazing lasts. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of writers who right now may be lead titles or might be a big splash and nothing better. Look two decades from now. Look five years from now. The books that kids return to are the great ones. Mm-hmm. The great ones last. And maybe some cute guy wrote it. Maybe some 80-year-old lady did. Right, That stuff is kind of temporary. Time will tell what books last. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. People always ask me, you know, what are your goals with writing? It's nothing I can control, so I can't focus on it. But if people are still reading my books in a hundred years, that's the biggest compliment I can ask for. That's a goal. Yeah.
1: That's a goal. Absolutely. To, to cross time and space and speak to someone through your words is the ultimate goal. Yeah. That I think is what makes me most happy. Yeah. Me too. Have you been around artists that are so consumed with all the other stuff? It tends to make the miserable, it makes me miserable. And I hope that all this doesn't sound like I'm being a downer. If anything, it's the opposite. Like, just keep doing this wonderful
0: thing you love and trying to get better and trying to achieve and just focus on that. Agreed. The very first time I wrote something, it's because I read something that I hated. And I was like, I can write better than that. And while it can be useful to get you started, holding on to that is not healthy because I can read a book that's on the New York Times bestseller and think I can write better than that. But The truth is that that book, if it sells a million copies, then publishing just made more money and they can use that money to take a chance, give a debut a chance. They're going to have extra money to take risks. Publishing doing well is good for writers. Someone
1: will always be better. Someone will always have a better cover. That's just a total losing game.
0: You published under your real name. Did you ever
1: give any consideration to a pseudonym? Not then at the time I was like, my name, I want my name to be on it. But see now different projects, I think, you know, maybe I'll be J.A. Martin Mm -hmm. or John Martin. I have thought about that. And I also think that that's kind of a cool part of being an author too is, hey, if you want a fresh start or start over, take Mm -hmm. a pen name. I have a close friend who is a superstar, amazing, badass author, so successful, But she has gone through many Mm -hmm. pen names, many iterations. And I love hearing the story about it. You're trying on another persona starting over again. Yeah, and you have
0: that option. What's up next for you? What's going on with you and where listeners can find you online? Mm -hmm. I'm writing again
1: and loving it and bouncing between two or three projects just because I'm bursting with ideas. And they're all so radically different. And you can find me online. I tend to be more on Twitter at Read Jenny Martin. My website's Read dot com. It's easiest to get a hold of me on Twitter.
0: Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbell. If you find the podcast or blog helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting gofundme.com and searching for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. Or visit the blog by going to writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and then the PayPal button. I'm your host, Mindy McGuinness. Join me next week for another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where writers talk about things that never happened to people that don't exist.